Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. All right, well, good evening, everybody. Um, glad y'all are here. I know that we're at that point in, that sem- in the semester where uh, our habits and the things that we have grown accustomed to can be hard to uphold. So we really appreciate y'all being here. We hope that um, you guys leave refreshed, and we're going to go to God's Word to do that. So before we start, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for um, the gift of life, God, the gift um, it is to be in your house with your people, God. So I pray, Lord, for all of us, God, as we sit in the hearing of your word to us in Isaiah chapter 42, Father, that you would convict our hearts, Lord, that you would stretch our imaginations, God, that you would reveal yourself to us through your son, Jesus. So we pray these things in this powerful and strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, so we are kicking off tonight a new series that will carry us through the rest of the semester, and we've entitled it The Servant Songs. And so you see we have, you know, just a really beautiful graphic up here, and we are going to lay in thick on the music theme, so just be prepared for the puns, right? So we are in a series in Isaiah where we're going to be looking at four different poems, four different songs that Isaiah has crafted that foretell, that foreshadow, that look ahead to God's deliverance for his people. And so tonight we are in the first song. So we read chapter 42 verses one through nine. That's my bad. I I didn't tell him to to have the other verses, but we're in one through nine tonight. And we are going to look at how Isaiah is unfolding a fuller and clearer picture of who this servant is going to be in small iterations. And so you can imagine this is like uh, Isaiah's EP, right? This is his four, you know, his first like length album or not full length, but you know, like short little, you know, singles. I'm not a music guy, but you guys know what I'm talking about, right? This is Isaiah's EP and in it, he's casting this vision of what God's servants will be. In it, he is casting a vision of both justice and redemption for Israel and the world. And so like any great album, what you hear and what you see in the content of each song is really only the tip of the iceberg. Every great album stands on a tradition that comes before, right? So you don't get Nirvana without the Beatles, right? And you don't get the Beatles without the Beach Boys, You don't get Marvin Gaye without Motown. You don't get Kendrick Lamar without Kanye West, right? These people come, stand on a tradition, a heritage that they've inherited. And the way that they access this heritage is through what music people will call samples, right? So we got a lot of music people, right? And we have a lot of music fans, right? When you sample a song, you take a snippet, right? You twist it. You cut it, it could be a line, it could be a phrase, it could be a guitar riff, it could be a drum beat, right? Whatever you do, you twist it and you repurpose it for new intent. And that is exactly what we're finding here in the servant song. See, Isaiah is sampling all sorts of themes and phrases and content that come before in the Old Testament. And the New Testament writers will go back to pick up these songs and will sample them themselves, particularly in the Gospels, but also throughout the New Testament. 
So tonight, we are going to unpack, before we begin, we're going to unpack a little bit of the, the context, right? We're going to unpack some of the history of what's going on in the book of Isaiah, because if we're honest, this is not really a book. We, I mean, we pick it up and we read it and we're like, nope, right? Close it right back up, put it down. And so it's important for us to understand what is happening contextually before, I mean, we're 42 chapters deep. There's a lot that's come before. So if you will, let me set the table for us a bit. Set the table for us a bit, and then we'll dive in. So Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is divided, a lot of scholars think different things, but relatively it's divided into two chapters, all right? So the first section, the first major part of Isaiah is chapters 1 through 39, and in that chapter, Isaiah is preaching judgment that is coming to Jerusalem, Isaiah is preaching judgment that is coming to Jerusalem. These first 39 chapters detail explicitly how Israel, God's people in Jerusalem, have abandoned their identity, have abandoned who God has called them to be, and the responsibilities that are attached to that. If you remember back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, Abraham makes it, God calls Abraham out of Ur, out of Babylon. And he gives him three promises. And as part of that, Abraham has a responsibility. His responsibility is to bless the nations. Abraham's responsibility from the get-go is to be the channel by which God can extend his life, his new creating life, to reverse what has fallen and broken about our word. And he's decided to do it through Abraham and his people. And so at this point in the Old Testament narrative, the people of Israel have foregone that responsibility. Rather than generosity of, of giving to others, they've turned inward. They're selfish. Rather than uphold truth, they've opted for corruption. Rather than love and serve their neighbor, they've chosen violence. And so Isaiah is preaching judgment on Israel. And so where we come to this point, the end of section one ends with Israel finally understanding God's truth. Finally coming to a place where God has said, look, I'm not going to allow this disobedience anymore. And so Babylon, the very place that Israel was birthed out of, comes and finally consumes them again and sends them off into exile. And that's where we end chapter 39. But there's chapter two. There's section two. So chapters 40 through 66 is Isaiah casting a vision of restoration for God's people. Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 is, uh, has a bit of a time jump, right? We've all seen a movie where we're just like disoriented time-wise, right? We're jumping back and forth. But in this chapter right here, chapter 40, we jump about 200 years into the future, and Isaiah's words are forecasted. They're being forecasted into the future and applied to a situation where we've breezed over a hundred years of pain and injustice and violence and atrocity committed against God's people. And we're just assumed that we would understand that. And so we have this time jump and there God opens up this chapter through, uh, so Isaiah, through God through the prophet Isaiah says this in chapter 40, verse one. He says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Section two begins with a word of hope, with a word of good news. 
Your pain is coming to an end. God is coming to restore you to your fortunes once again. The exile is coming to an end. Let's celebrate. So what is Israel's response? How do they, how do they take this good news? Do they respond with a party, right? Do they, do they have a celebration to extol and praise God who is going to restore them? Do they respond with worship? Do they bow down before him and thank him for his kindness and generosity to them? If you know much about the Old Testament story, you know that's not typically how it goes. Israel's response to God's generosity in this way is they accuse him. They accuse him of not caring about them. If you look in chapter 40, verse 27, God in response to this accusation says this, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Israel levels a twofold accusation against God and his character. Side A says this, my way is hidden. My way is hidden. See, if God cared about us so much, well then, why did he not care to have an intervening presence while we were going through hell on earth? If God cared about us so much, then how come he doesn't hold me accountable for the small little things that I do that are maybe not quite just to my neighbor? If God cared about us so much, why doesn't he come correct us when we make mistakes? See, my way is hidden. God doesn't care to see what I do in the darkness. God doesn't care what I do to find happiness. God doesn't care who I sleep with. God doesn't care what I do for fun. God doesn't care what I do to make money. God doesn't care how I treat other people. Otherwise, he would do something about it. And the second accusation, the second side, side B, is the equal and the opposite. God doesn't care. If God cared so much, well then why did he not have an intervening presence as we were suffering torture and pain and injustice and violence committed at the hands of Babylon? If God cares so much, well then where was he? If God cared so much, then how come he didn't uphold his promises to me? If God cared so much, then why has he disregarded my rights? It's a similar song. I'm sure that we've all heard before. I mean, are we not the same? Do we not so often level the same accusations against God and against his character? Do we not both suffer injustice and even commit some ourselves if we're honest and we think to ourselves, man, I got away with that, like my way is hidden. Or do we not suffer someone doing something against us and being like, God, what the heck, man, my right is disregarded. See, we hear this similar song. It's like uh, the 13-year-old, right, who his parents let him stay home for the first time. You guys, maybe that was you. I know it was definitely me, right? The 13-year-old whose parents let him stay home for the first time, right? And at first, like, it is a party, right? You know, I'm raiding the pantry. I'm eating, like, the whole bag of Oreos, right? I might just eat a stick of butter, I don't know, for fun, right? I'm going to throw all of the Netflix shows on that I'm not supposed to watch, like Narco, shout out. It's got some crazy stuff in there, right? I'm going to do whatever I want. It's a party, party of one. But there comes a point in the night when 
a change happens, right? There comes a part in the night in the 13-year-old's fun fest that he starts to wonder, like, it's getting a little dark. It's getting a little quiet in this house. I've run out of things to watch. I've run out of food to eat. What time did I say to be back in? 7.30? It's like 7.45. Is that them in the driveway? No, I don't think so. And your mind starts racing, right? And you start asking, you start, start, start wondering, oh, oh, it's getting really late now. Like, is, is everything okay? Does something bad happen, right? What's going what's gonna to happen if they don't come back? What's going to happen if it's me all alone in this house? See, reality really knows how to kill the vibe. The fun stops when we realize that we just might be on our own. And at what point does our freedom become our dread? And that is the question that Israel is left asking. See, we and Israel, like the kid left home alone, are left asking this same question, what if the father never comes back? What if it's just me all alone? What if God doesn't care? And what Isaiah is doing in these four poems that we are looking at, he is crafting a vision. He's crafting a vision that will become God's answer. Isaiah's servant songs are God's answer to this question. Though they think their way is hidden, and though they think their right has been disregarded, God has not left his people alone. He will give them a servant who will serve as his light, his arm of justice, and his agent of new creation who blesses the nations. And so tonight, we are going to look at the first song, and we're going to look at this mysterious figure and how Isaiah has decided to characterize. And we're going to look at the who of this song. How is this person designated? What task is he being given? What is his mission? And how will he accomplish it? And to what end? And so that's how we're going to spend the rest of our time together, if you'll let me. So look back in your Bibles. Chapter 42, verse 1. We're going to look at these visions of this servant and the vision that Isaiah lays out. Isaiah lays out a vision for what this servant will be designated as. He is three things. He is God's chosen. He is God's delight. And he is a covenant given to the people. He's God's promise to Israel. So if you look with me back in verse 1, he says, Behold, my servant. God, through the words of the prophet Isaiah, says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. That word there, chosen, is a technical title. It is, in Hebrew, the word bahir. Y'all say that, bahir? Yeah, you guys, that was terrible, but it's okay. No one knows Hebrew. It's really, it's fine. So, Bahir, and it literally means the elect of the Lord. And it's a title that is given to other characters throughout the Old Testament, right? So, so Moses is this Bahir. He is this elect of the Lord. And he's elected, he's chosen for a certain task, right? Moses is, is chosen to free and lead the people out of Egypt. And he's elected to stand as mediator between God and those people as they commit uh, idolatry and worship the golden calf, Mount Sinai, 
right? The, other, the next person that we see in the Old Testament that is, that is a Bahir and elective, the Lord is a surprising character. It's actually King Saul. King Saul is elect of the Lord to be prince over the people Israel and to save them for, from their enemies. That's what 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel 9 tells us. But Saul is also elect of the people. He is a king after the people's imaginations and the, king, the people's hearts. And as a result, he becomes this, he's, he's elected to transform and to save Israel from their enemies, but he himself is transformed into their worst enemy himself. King David is an elect of the Lord, but he offers us this, this contrasting vision to Saul, right? Where Saul is the king after the people's heart. David is the king after God's heart. And he gives us a picture of what repentance and faith looks like as God's chosen. And finally, Israel as a whole is oftentimes referred to as God's chosen people. They are God's elected nation who are given a task to be God's blessing to the nations, to be the channel by which God is working new creation into his world. So this servant is God's chosen, but he is also God's delight. Look back with me in verse one. Isaiah, or the Lord through the prophet Isaiah says, behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen and whom my soul delights. And I have put my spirit upon him. What does it mean to delight in something, right? The Old Testament is, is littered with examples of, of God's delight, right? We, we talked about how God has chosen his people, Israel, to be a blessing and a light to the nations, right? He delights his people, the Old Testament tells us. We also know from Psalm 51 that God does not delight in sacrifices so much as he delights in a humble heart that comes repentant to him, right? When David confesses his sin to the Lord. We also know that Eden itself is the garden of God's delight. It's the place he's focused his presence at the very beginning of God's word and the place that he's pleased and happy to dwell with his creation. God's delight runs all throughout the Old Testament and into the new. So the question is, what does it mean for us to delight in something? You guys have all probably experienced this, but the, the, the suggestion that I would offer for us this, this evening, rather, is to delight means to lend yourself to something, to lend yourself to something outside of yourself. You might be like, Cole, like, what? <laughs> right? But think about it, right? We can delight in all sorts of things. If you go, if you love sports, right, you go to a sports game, sports game, you go to a football game, how about that? Or baseball, right? You're immersed in the drama that's happening on the fields. You are delighting in the game. And in some sense, you're cast up outside of yourself as you're watching what's happened what's happening, right? You forget what's happening around you. You forget the elbows, right, that you're getting like just crushed with by the people standing by you. Forgetting like you got drenched with uh, not Coke, right, uh, earlier. You get popcorn all in your hair, right? You are, you are totally outside of yourself because you're immersed in what's happening and the thing that you're delighting in. The same could be said for movies or books or concerts, right? We have these things that enrapture our attention and we become so fixated on it that we forget where we're at in that moment. This even can happen with a person. We can be so enraptured with our attention on somebody that we forget what's happening around us, right? We call this falling in love, you know? And this is why the author uh, Solomon, who writes in Song of Solomon, right, in the words of the woman there, she says, look, I'm my beloved and 
I am his. My beloved is mine and I am his, right? There's this picture of mutual delight, this being enraptured together, right? And so what does it mean that God will delight in this servant? Look with me again in chapter 42, verse 8. There, the Lord through the prophet Isaiah says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God has delighted in the servant to such an extent that he has a unique identification with him. God has lent himself to some extent in this figure. He's letting him bear his glory. He's letting him carry his reputation to the world. No other representation was ever given this distinction. This servant is unique and that God has bestowed a piece of himself onto the servant as his delight. See, God is, this servant is God's chosen. This servant is God's delight. This servant is also given as a covenant. So if you look with me in, in uh, verse six, there the Lord through the prophet Isaiah says, I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. And I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation. See, all those characters that were God's chosen throughout the Old Testament narrative, right? Guys like Abraham, guys like Moses, guys like David, they all received promises from God. We call these things covenants. They all received these arrangements, these agreements of what God is going to do on their behalf. But this servant is different. This servant does not receive a promise from God, but rather he is a promise to be received by others. This servant is unique that he is chosen by God to bear his glory as his delight, to be given as a promise for others. And what will be his task? What is this servant supposed to do? What is his mission? If you look with me again in verse one, there it says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will do this. He will bring forth justice to the nations. His task is to bring the nations to account, to hold them accountable to the order that God has set at the beginning. This servant is the instrument of God's justice. This guy's going to do what those other Old Testament figures could not, right? Moses, Saul, David, Israel as a whole, their job was to mediate God's life and presence to the nations around them. And rather do this, they fail. They fail, but it's not going to be this way with the servant. See, he's going to accomplish this mission and vision that God has set forth for him. He will bring justice to the world. And this word justice here, we're getting like nerdy tonight, right? Like we're going Hebrew. So bear with me. This word justice means, is, is, is literally transliterated as mishpat, okay? Mishpat, I'm not gonna make you say it because you couldn't do it the first time. So mishpat has a range of meanings and it is a loaded term throughout the Old Testament. But if we can dumb it down to three unique meanings that I took from the dictionary, it means judgment, it means order, and it means rights, like my rights, your rights, our rights as, as people in a country that sees rights. And this is the exact basis of the accusation that Israel has leveled against God in verse 27 of chapter 40. 
So God has disregarded my rights. God has disregarded my mishpat. God has not honored the promises that he made to me. God has dealt unjustly with me. God has not given me what I owe. And when we think about this term of justice, right, we can refer to things big and small. We can refer to isolated acts, right? You throw a rock at your neighbor, that's not cool, that's unjust, right? You (laughs) accuse your neighbor of tax fraud and he goes to jail forever, right? That's also not just, and that's a much bigger consequence. Both of these things can be understood as mishpat, as justice. Brevard Childs, he is a theologian and he wrote a really great commentary in the book of Isaiah. He puts mishpat this way, he says, Mishpat, in a general holistic sense, refers to the restoration of God's order in the world. Mishpat, in a general holistic sense, refers to God's restoration of his order in the world. Mishpat is about God righting the wrongs that we see and experience today. Mishpat is about rewinding the clock on the choice of Adam and Eve that has led to generations of sin and decay and violence and death, all things that were never a part of God's intent. Mishpat is about working backwards until all tears are wiped away, until all wrongs are made right. It's about turning back the curse of sin and its consequences. See, what sin has destroyed, God sends the servant to buy back. What sin has damaged, God sends the servant to make new again. And we've talked a lot about this in our previous series on Matthew 23, but God's justice, God's judgment is that which he will not allow to take part in the world of his design. God's justice is that thing that he says a firm no to, no way, nuh-uh, not happening. Right? Whether it's big or small, lying, cheating, stealing, murder, whatever it may be, those things that we suffer and those things that we commit, God will do away with both. His mishpat will come. He is the ultimate agent of new creation. That very thing which Israel was responsible for but failed to be. So this servant, to recap just a little bit, right? he, is, he is designated as God's chosen, who is his delight and his covenant promise for the people, and he is going to come and bring God's justice. But how? How is he going to do this? See, Isaiah lays out things that the servant will not do and things that the servant assuredly will do. So start with, you know, the will not, right? So look at me in verse Verse 2 of chapter 42, the servant will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench, but he will faithfully bring forth justice. The servant will not bring forth justice through violence. The servant will not bring forth justice through violence. At this point in the Old Testament story, Israel is coming out of exile. Babylon has consumed them and crushed them and taken them away to a foreign land, but God 
who is the author of all kingdom nations, who is the author of all human history, well, he's decided to raise up a bigger and badder nation by the name of Persia. And their king, maybe you remember from, from history class, is named Cyrus. Cyrus was a bully, right? And he crashed through Babylon and trampled them and smashed them to bits like cheap clay pots. But the servant's justice will not be like this. The servant's justice will be nothing like this reckless king. It will be different. He will not kick those who are down. He will not break those who are bent. He will not extinguish those who are fading away. His justice will not be like that of Cyrus who broke completely the fading Babylon, who extinguished the bent nation. But it will be a different sort of justice. The justice of the servant will be one achieved through mercy. One achieved through mercy and gentleness. Now, you might be thinking like, okay, like when I think of justice, I think of, you know, law and order, think of uh, Suits, which everyone apparently is watching now on Netflix, right? You think of, right, like a cold judge presiding and rendering, you know, the gavel and it's like, you suck, you're going to jail forever, right? We don't think of justice as merciful, Think of an eye for an eye. Think of a tooth for a tooth. We think a death sentence to put away a criminal forever. But this servant's justice will be of a different sort. How is it possible that he can achieve justice through mercy? And I think we get a vision of this through the things that he will do. So look with me in verse 6. This is what the servant will do to achieve justice. There, the Lord, through a prophet Isaiah, says, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you and I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to do what? To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The servant is God's light. When he comes, he'll flip the switch on humanity. When he comes, he will tell the truth about what we do in the dark. The servant has come to flip the switch on, the lights for the nations. And so for those who complain, look, my way is hidden. I can get away with whatever I want. God has not held me accountable yet. Their deeds are exposed and their delights are revealed as wicked. What the servant will do is he will turn the lights on. He will return home from a night out. He will confront us and make us face the music of our choices and how we have conducted violence against ourselves and against others. And he will hold us accountable. But how is this achieved through Mercy, well, keep reading. He has come to flip the light on, but what is, he's not going to stop there. He's going to free the prisoners and he's going to free us from the prison of our own freedom, from the prison of, of us taking matters into our own hands, of us taking our own desires and making them chief of all. And he's going to do more than that. He's going to reacclimate our eyes from the darkness. He's going to tell the truth about what it is that kills us. It's our selfishness. It's being right in our own eyes. It's doing what we want 
the expense of whoever we want. The servant has come to tell us the truth of God's justice. And this, sisters and brothers, is a mercy in and of itself. Because God could have just let reality hit us. God could have never come home. God could have let us atrophy in our own pile of filth and disgusting brokenness, but he comes in gentleness and truth to restore our eyes and bring us back to order. He achieves justice through mercy. As I was thinking about an example of how to like illustrate this, right? Um, I started thinking about cigarettes. I don't know why. Um, so if you smoke cigarettes, you might want to leave the room. I don't, that's going to be pretty unkind to you. And this is not a dare like illustration, right? I know you guys all did that in fifth grade, but it's like cigarettes, right? We all, we all know cigarettes are bad. We all know like if you smoke them a bunch, right? Not great things are going to happen to your lungs. There's going to be consequences, but people do it anyway, right? People know the risk and they say, man, it's fine. I'll be, I'll be fine, right? But the reality is, and the truth of reality is that that act will undo us. And so we have no option but to confess that that is the truth of reality. It's just how the world works. But the only choice we do have is how we approach that reality. Because the fact of the matter is, we will make that confession one day. You'll either make it positively or negatively. We all will say, cigarettes do indeed kill us. I am living proof because, well, I'm not living, I'm dead, right? The confession will be through our adherence to what reality has promised. Or we can make that confession through repentance by saying, you know what? I was wrong. Reality, you win. The world will kill me if I smoke cigarettes and there's nothing I can do about it. And so we cannot change the state that we are in, but we can respond in a way that either gives us life or gives us death. And this is the exact way it is with sin. We can acknowledge the truth that sin is undoing us that our selfishness, that our choices, that our elevation of ourselves over and against our neighbors is the very thing that will one day do away with us. We cannot fight against the physics of God's worlds. We can only adhere to them, whether that's through our own death or through our life of repentance. And that is the option that the servant presents before us. We will make this confession, but God and his mercy has come to tell us the truth about his justice. God in his mercy has come to enable us to choose repentance. And this is the task of the servant. Okay, so to recap, the servant is God's chosen. He's his delight. He's given as a covenant for the people. He's come to bring justice to the nations. He's going to do that not by extinguishing those who are already broken, but by telling the truth of this world and our place in it and how God desires to be merciful for us in that. And the final question is to what end? 
When will this all be? What is it going to look like? What does success look like for this servant? See, Isaiah's servant that he depicts in chapter 42 will not grow faint. He will not be like those who have come before him. Isaiah 40, uh, verse 28 through 31, it records Israel's efforts to achieve God's mission on their own strength. There Isaiah says, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint and he does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths fall faint and are weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But Isaiah's servant, chapter 42, verse 4, will not grow faint. And he will not be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. See, Israel grows faint. We grow weary, but God's servant doesn't. We will one day succumb to the pressures of physics in the world that we live in, but God's servant doesn't. We will one day not be able to stand under the pressure of who we are and what we are called to do, but God's servant will finish it entirely and fully until the whole earth has come under the order of God's justice, until the prisoners are free, until the blind see, until the former things pass, until the new comes, until death is done away with finally and fully, and all are free from the curse of sin, until life is all there is and all there ever could be. This is the conclusion of the servant's task. This is what will happen. He will assuredly do it. And so the question that we have tonight is this, does God care? Does God care about you? Does he care about me? Does he care to correct us? Does he care to comfort us. And in Isaiah's servant, we find a resolutely and resounding yes. God cares. See, we are like Israel, no? We ourselves are in an exile of sorts. We ourselves are sojourners and passers-by in this world looking for a city that has foundations. We are assaulted and confronted by reality at every turn. We strive, we mourn, and we grieve, and we come across this world and wish it was different, but it just isn't. So we ask, Lord, how long? How long will this suffering last? How long will you make me wait? How long until you make this world right? See, God can seem absent. He can seem like he's left us alone. He can seem disinterested in our pain. He can seem distant from our tears. But the servant is Isaiah's answer to this question. God has not left us alone. The servant is our lamp to our feet. He's the light to our path. He is the arm of God's justice. He is the resolute and firm reminder and the truth that God sees and knows and remembers and he cares. And so Isaiah 
looked forward to the day that God's servant would come. Isaiah looked forward in hope that God's servant would resolutely appear to redeem and rescue his people, but we have the privilege and benefit of looking back. We can look back to the words of Paul in Philippians 2, who says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on earth in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father. So in other words, Christ is God's servant. Christ came not as a violent warrior king who has come to conquer and crush his enemies in the lineage of Cyrus. No, he came as a gentle teacher who was compassionate for lost sheep. He did not come to break those who were already bent and to extinguish those who were already fading, but he himself was broken and extinguished on our behalf. Christ is the one who, through his death and burial and resurrection, purchased justice on your behalf and mind on account of his great mercy. And now he lives. He lives. He lives and he is working. And he is going to continue working and he will not stop. He will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged. He will not cease to stand as our intercessor until the former things have come to pass. And he who sits on the throne says, behold, I have made all things new. Christ is our servant and Christ is God's answer for us. He has not left us alone. Our way is not hidden. Our rights have not been disregarded. We are not left to perish in our own freedom, but we have been reordered by God and his spirit to enjoy his life forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.